Welcome back to the program. Throughout history, we have always looked at technology as a tool to make life easier. Whether it was the wheel, a shovel, a pencil, or today our smartphones. Our technology today was in many ways designed and sold to us to make us more creative. Instead, in many ways, it has made us more fractured and distracted. But the fault is not in the zeros and ones, but in ourselves. My guest, Dr. Alex Pang, believes that we have the power to change our relationship with technology, and he writes about it in his new book, The Distraction Addiction. Alex Pang is a futurist and thought leader in the field of contemplative computing. He's a senior consultant at Strategic Business Insights, a visiting scholar at Stanford and Oxford Said Business School, he has fellowships at Williams College, Berkeley, and the Microsoft Research Institute at Cambridge. It is my pleasure to welcome Alex Pang here to talk about his new book, The Distraction Addiction, Getting the Information You Need and the Communications You Want Without Further Enraging Your Family, Annoying Your Colleagues, and Destroying Your Soul. Alex Pang, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. It is interesting that when we run into this problem of, of being addicted to these devices and being concerned about the way that they're reshaping our brains, that in fact we're very quick to blame the devices, to blame technology, and not take any of the responsibility on ourselves in terms of the way we use them and the way we can use them. It's certainly the case that uh, we often have the sense or whether, regardless of where it comes from, that um, we don't have a lot of choice about these things, or that our engagements with these, uh, the, or with these devices, is both inevitable and inescapable. You know, the smartphone didn't exist seven years ago, and yet we've, in a relatively short period of time, gone from them being rarities um, to being things that you know we spend hours and hours a day with. And so, yes, I think it's that, that, and in that kind of situation, it's easy to get the idea, in order to get the idea that um, we don't have a lot of choice about how we use these. You know, we need them to stay in touch, we need them to keep in touch with the office, um, to communicate with people, and that sort of the price of being always online is being constantly distracted and having your attention fractured. And the point that I try to make in the distraction addiction is that that's not the case, that even in a world that tries to sort of close off our sense of agency and free will about these devices, um, and that describes our use of them as sort of, uh, sort of tickling the pleasure centers of our brain and, and giving us little dopamine hits, that we still have the ability to take a step back, to look at how we're using these devices, to examine how they're affecting our social lives and our minds, and then to make changes that sort of allow us to go from being sort of addicted to these sort of technologies to, sort of, to relationships in which they serve our needs rather than us serving theirs. How much of this addiction to these devices is a function mm -hmm. of the way these devices are designed? The, the idea that that the potential for addiction and distraction is baked into the very design and concept of these devices? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that uh, plenty of smartphone designers and social media designers would like to say all of it, right? <laughs> and they are very aware of research in uh, neuroscience and behavioral economics, and they are 
they're certainly trying hard to um, design tools, design interactions uh, to work in uh, sort, of, uh, sort of a social dimension to these uh, to these technologies that makes it harder for us to get off of them to say no. And so I think that there is that uh, that there is a there certainly is an effort um, the, to sort of make them easier to use, to make them um, more addictive. Uh, in Silicon Valley, the sort of the idea that a technology is addictive or that the you know, a game is addictive is a good thing. And however, I think that it's still the case that despite you know it's it's kind of like um, like food. You know, sort of there are or or companies that make food certainly want to make stuff that's delicious, that's easy to eat. They spend a lot of time figuring out uh, how to play around with consistency and fat and salt to to make dishes ones that sort of we can eat almost mindlessly. Um, but just as with food, sort of we have the power to pay it, uh, sort of to sort of to wake up to pay attention to how. Sort of we sort of experience these things, how we how we use technologies, and to sort of, and to say um, or to make a choice about how engaged we want to be with them and in what ways we want to be engaged. So you know the fact that uh, that uh, that companies sort of spend plenty of time trying to grab our attention, trying to create technologies that sort of bake addiction into them, um, doesn't mean that. Uh, they either necessary that they have to succeed, or that we should let them succeed. We should be able. To, we should still recognize that we have a choice in these matters. And in many cases, it is those that put out the technology that love to believe in the idea of some kind of technological determinism, which in fact may not be the case at all, as you say. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you know, um, and the the idea that. In this very short period of time, we've gone, or, uh, you know, we've gone from sort of services not existing to services that are ubiquitous. Think of, you know, sort of Facebook and Twitter and other social media, or think of the number of smartphones that are sold every year. I think in 2012, it was 700 million smartphones um, changed hands, which is an amazing number given that these things you know, were, were, were just on drawing boards a decade ago. But you know, and I think that uh, throughout, certainly throughout the last hundred years or so, um, to put on my historian of technology hat, <laughs> companies have used the rhetoric of technological determinism to uh, to, to create a sense of inevitability and a sense of triumph around their products, or you know, around other projects like infrastructure development or real estate development. The idea that you, you, know, you can't stop progress doesn't just kind of come out of the ether. This was an idea that, or, uh, that um, developers and, uh, and, and companies love to wield against critics. And I think, once again, the idea that, uh, and we're seeing a new version of this um, playing out in our, dev- in our device and social, uh, social media use, um, and you see it reflected in things like appeals to neuroscience. You know, the idea that um, these technologies change our brains, that they sort of hit us with dopamine is, I think, sort of used or to create
brains work, how can we resist that? So I think you're absolutely right that sort of that uh, there is this appeal to determinism that we have to think through and recognize as as sort of only as true as we allow it to be. One of the things that perhaps leads to that belief, I think, and, and fosters it in many respects, is that the impact, and you talk a lot about this, the impact these devices have, it's not just a mental kind of addiction, but there's a mental aspect and a physical aspect as well, even to something seemingly as trivial as, as the kind of email apnea that you talk about. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it, one of the things that we uh, that we often fail to recognize, but which influences our relationships with these devices greatly, is the fact that our sort of interactions with them don't just have a purely sort of cognitive aspect. It's not just uh, you know the information coming into our brains, but rather there's a bodily component too. And there is, I think, about two thirds of people, for example, experience what scientists call phantom ringtone, phantom cell phone anxiety, which is um, the feeling of your phone buzzing in your pocket or your jacket, even when it's not there. It's a sensation that's caused maybe by sort of air or sort of fabric brushing against your skin, but you, you know, your, your nervous system is attuned to listening in a sense or for of your cell phone going off, and so it can interpret other things falsely as or your cell phone ringing, ringing and buzzing. And I think that there there are a number of other ways in which our physical relationships with our phones sort of contribute to our use or our overuse of them, or or help us become sort of a little more sort of, of a little more focused around them than um, I think we would have realized we are. We've been talking about it in the context of the phones, but it relates to, mm-hmm. to technology even in a broader sense. For example, these programs that, that you've ta- you talk about as well that allow you to, to turn off the web while you're sitting there trying to write or do something else. Yeah, well, um, there are cate- there's a category of software uh, that uh, writer Jeff McIntyre described as Zenware. And the idea here is that these are programs that either turn off the Internet for a certain period of time. Um, some of them will block your access to websites that you find especially distracting or will give you, you know, 20 minutes a day with them. And then there are others that take, uh, take um, traditional word processing programs, for example, and strip them down to an absolute basic number of functions so that you can't kind of self-distract by playing around with fonts and margins and other kinds of things that feel like you're sort of doing, that create the impression of work, make you feel like you're getting stuff done, um, and confront you with the existential terror of the blank page that you have to fill with words. Um, and I think that the, one of the insights that these uh, that these uh, these programs provide is that we often think of software that's powerful and complicated as making us more productive, when that's not necessarily the case. You know, that kind of complexity is something that can serve as um, a source of confusion or, or diversion for sort of uh, for many of us. 
And it's often the case that taking a simpler kind of approach, you know, using software that doesn't do that very much, but allows us to do the one critical thing that we need to get done, um, can be actually can actually help us be more productive than something that has a lot of functionality and bells and whistles, but which can actually prevent us um, or divert us from getting done the things that we really need to get done. Historically, is this a major shift? When we look at tools historically, whether it's the shovel, the wheel, the pencil, whatever it might be, there have been tools that that adapted to suit us, tools that were adapted Mm -hmm. to make us work. The nature of technology in many ways is that we are having to adapt to our tools. That seems to be a fundamental difference. Talk about that. Okay. Well, um, I think that if there is something new about uh, about uh, today's information technologies, um, it is that they combine opportunities for productivity and distraction in one easy-to-use attractive package. So, um, you know, I suppose you can take a shovel and you can, you know, make a game around it rather than build a hole, but... Um, I think it's a little more difficult to do than when your or, you know, when your or laptop has both um, your spreadsheet and Angry Birds. The other thing about uh, I think about these uh, these tools, digital tools, is that they are devices that we often treat like people, and and in the sense that we know that they are. We know that they're technologies at one level. We know that they're machines, but um, we will sort of defer to them. We'll try not to criticize them in ways that reflect the sensibility that there is some kind of intelligence and personality and sort of psychology in those devices. Um, and I think that that's something that we tend not to do with other sorts of uh, other sorts of uh, devices. Now. At the same time, the idea that of this is novel needs to be balanced against the long view of human history and human evolution, which teaches us that humans have been evolving with and adapting to tools ever since human beings existed. Um, you know, our hands, for example, began evolving rather rapidly a couple million years ago. After the invention, uh, with the invention of stone tools and hand axes, and one of the reasons that our that our wrists are and fingers are more supple than those of our of um, our primate cousins is that, uh, so far as we can tell, they've evolved to make us better tool users. Likewise, uh, sort of our you know, our bodies are hairless, are largely hairless, in part because. A couple hundred thousand years ago, we started wearing clothes. And so the idea that we are, that there's something novel about humans interacting in a profound, basic way with technologies, sort of, that can sound scary, but it's actually one of the things that defines us as a species. And it can be a really terrific thing. Now, we're born with this incredibly powerful ability to use technologies so effortlessly 
that they literally become extensions of our minds and bodies. You think about or of playing a musical instrument or, or of riding a bicycle or, 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 or other activities like that. And they can, you know, when you do them well, you get this, you can have this sense that you're able now with this thing to do, or you know, to do things that you could not with your unassisted body. You know, to express ideas, to sort of go places that you couldn't just by yourself. And that is, I think, one of the great pleasures of life. And the problem is, you know, if we have a problem with or today's digital technologies, it's that we are trying to achieve those kinds of relationships with these devices, but we can't quite trust them to uh, to work with us in the way that we're accustomed to using uh, musical instruments or or or, you know, or, or vehicles. Um, it, it's a bit like trying to play a musical instrument that wants to play its own song or that wants you to keep playing it even after the song is over. And so what I th- so what we need to learn to do is to uh, to, uh, to to understand our relationships with these technologies and to understand the technologies well enough so that we can begin to use the, to be mindful about the technologies so that we can then be mindful while using the technologies. How much more difficult will that be once artificial intelligence, which is beginning to be built into some of this technology, becomes mm-hmm. profoundly more sophisticated? Right. You know, um, that's a that is an excellent question, and the and you know we are seeing in um, self-driving cars in the latest generations of smartphones the appearance of intelligence that is uh, that aims to anticipate what users are going to do and then to do it for them. A very simple example: you know, picking up the phone and holding it up to your ear. Um, there are sensors that can that can tell a difference between um, a finger tapping a phone and the ear touching the uh, sort of touching the phone, and it will then activate um, the the assistant that will ask, "What number do you want to dial?" And I, it it could be the case that these uh, these kinds of assistance make it even harder for us to disengage with these technologies are really actually harder to use them in ways that we want rather than in ways that the technology, let's say, wants, though, or uh, I think that it's, it's tricky to talk about what technologies want. Kevin Kelly's book on the subject aside. Right. Um, it can't, you know, sort of, the appearance of that sort of agency can or can serve to either a um, make it hard, simply make it harder for us to interact with the phone or the devices on our terms, um, and b help create the sense that um, we should figure out how we can work with the devices rather than figuring out how to make the devices work with us. The other side of that, of course, is that no matter how intellectually determinist we want to be, there's a certain point where it runs head up against the realities of evolutionary biology, and it's in those inflection mm-hmm. points, it seems, that we really have the challenges ahead of us. You know, I think that sort of thinking, in, uh, thinking about our relationships with these devices in terms of sort of biology and evolution is 
useful to a degree. I mean, in the sense that it helps us understand the ways in which of these devices can become sort of uh, uh, can become part of us. They can become sort of addictive. They can help us understand how the relationships can work well and they can go wrong. Um, at the same time, I think that we need to balance that against a recognition that um, you know, biology is not destiny, and that uh, sort of along with the long history of humans adapting to or, or evolving with our tools, there's also uh, an equally important story of us making choices about them, and also a long history of of humans of of what scientists refer to as in the sort of in the case of our relationships sort of with uh, of, uh, with technologies and their effect on our brain neuroplasticity you know this idea that our brains literally change as we learn new things as we learn to use new tools now sort of neuroplasticity can be understood to mean that the internet is changing the way that we think and that is i mean that is true to the degree that everything changes the way that our brains work or the way mm -hmm. that we think. But what that also means is we have the capacity to change it again. That you know, if, the, you know, if spending years online surfing the web begins to affect, let's say, our ability sort of to think slowly, to think deeply about big questions, um, that's a capacity that we can get back. And so you know, I think that the uh, that um, sort of evolution and sort of uh, and an understanding of, of the of the biology behind our entanglements with technology is a really good thing to understand. But I think that we should understand uh, we should not let it limit either our sense of how much control, how much of a, how much free will we have in the way that we use these devices, um, and we should instead recognize that there is this long history of doing really good, sometimes noble things with technologies that um, uh, we should uh, we should look to as a model for our engagements with them in our present lives and in the future. There's an interesting aspect to that because we seem to have this bias built into us in some ways that the neuroplasticity only works in one direction. And in fact, yes. as you point out, it works both ways. Yes. Well, you know, I think that sort of the, you know, neuroplasticity is a relatively new concept and it's one that people thinking about human-computer interaction really only started uh, started trying to work through in the last few years. And I think that the, uh, the first efforts to apply it were really, or, or were really interested in the question of what effect does the Internet have on the way our brains work? And they weren't yet asking the question, okay, so what can neuroplasticity tell us about efforts to uh, recover abilities that maybe were lost or in the first few years of our use of the web or, or that, that, that might um, degrade when we use uh, or smartphones for long periods of time. Now, and I think we're at the and one of the interesting things that's happened over the last maybe year or so is 
not a backlash against arguments about neuroplasticity, but rather a recognition of which I think the or of my book is just you know, one or uh, one example that says you know what neuroplasticity should not be used as a synonym for determinism. You know, if anything, um, we should recognize that what neuroplasticity teaches is that abilities that might erode over time, things that we sort of used to be able to do very well, but we but but if we no longer or do is uh, we're no longer so skilled at these are things that we can get back. Neuroplasticity doesn't mean uh, determinism; it means never having to say goodbye to or an ability that uh, that you once possessed and treasured and want to have again. Is is this a mistake that the slow technology movement people make that they don't recognize that on on that side of the argument? Hmm. You know, um, I, I think that the, 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 the slow technology folks, I don't know that I've sort of, uh, that they've, uh, that they've spent much time sort of talking about sort of neuroplasticity. But I mean, I think that they are, you know, they're right on in the, in their sort of idea that one of the things that, uh, that we, that is worth trying to do with sort of our technologies and our relationships with our technologies is slow them down. Not in the sense, not necessarily in the literal sense of using them more slowly, but in the sense of using them in ways that make us more conscious of and, and more in control of, sort of our relationships. You know, I think one of the, one of the really interesting things about um, sort of our experience our, our use of devices and our experience of time is that when you know when you use something really really well, um, when you're deeply engaged in uh, again playing music or playing a video game, your sense of time can slow down. Um, it's a really remarkable experience for anyone who's had it. And one you know when I think about slow technology, I think. What I want in slow technology is not necessarily technology that moves at a snail's pace, but rather an experience of using the technology that does not leave me feeling hurried, feeling like I have less time, feeling like I have to be sort of constantly aware of the clock, Um, but rather having a sense of time that is, uh, in which... I'm almost in which I am almost not aware of time, and therefore uh, it pass, it, 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 uh, my experience of it is one in which it passes very slowly. So, you know, I think slow technology is uh, the idea of slow technology is is terrific. Um, it doesn't, however, it doesn't involve slowing the technology down, but making our relationships with it good enough so that part of our experience of it slows in a profoundly good way. Alex Pang, his book just out from Little Brown is The Distraction Addiction. Alex, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thank you. It was a a real pleasure. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.